What's your feelings, your experience that day in Dallas? Well, of course, it was a horrible experience. Uh, we'd had a, a wonderful morning. We'd had a breakfast in Fort Worth. We'd landed in, in Dallas. Sun broke out about noon. We were in a parade, a motorcade, down through the main part of town. The crowds were extremely enthusiastic, warm, excited, exuberant. And uh, just after we turned off of Main Street, Nellie uh, turned around and said to the president, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you now. And uh, he said, no, you can't. We turned on Elm Street to go under the overpass, and I heard this uh, sound that I thought was a rifle shot. I turned to look over my right shoulder, because that's where the sound came from, to see if I could see anything. I didn't. And I was in the process of turning to look over my left shoulder when I felt an impact, as if someone hit me with a, a closed fist right in the middle of my back. The force was strong enough to where it knocked me over. And I, I saw that I was covered with blood. So, frankly, I thought I had been fatally hit. My wife pulled me down in her lap. She was seated in the jump seat on my left, and I was seated on the jump seat directly in front of the president. She pulled me down into her lap, and about that time, I heard another shot about that loud, a smack. And my eyes were open. I was conscious, and I saw the, the blue velour interior of this presidential limousine covered with blood and brain tissue. And I knew that the president had been fatally hit. Uh, I knew it, it was the president because Ms. Kennedy said she just screamed, my God, I've got his brains in my hand. You know, it couldn't be a more horrible uh, experience. Now, was there a conspiracy? I don't know. I was there. Uh, but uh, I was taken immediately to the hospital. The flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. the end of innocence i'm your host john young so far we've been going through the evidence related to injuries to kennedy's throat and neck or back depending on what you believe 
According to the Warren report, that same bullet that hit President Kennedy traveled into Governor Connolly's back near his right armpit immediately after exiting Kennedy's throat. The report said, quote, In their testimony, the three doctors who attended Governor Connolly at Parkland Hospital expressed independently their opinion that a single bullet had passed through his chest, tumbled through his wrist with very little exit velocity, leaving small metallic fragments from the rear portion of the bullet, punctured his left thigh after the bullet had lost virtually all of its velocity, and fallen out of the thigh wound, end quote. Initially, the Warren Report did not propose a single bullet theory, but in July 1964, about two months before the final report was to be released, the Warren Commission had concluded that the first of three shots hit the president in the back, the second caused injuries to Governor Connolly, and the third caused President Kennedy's fatal head wound. So originally, the single bullet would have only had to cause Governor Connolly's injuries. But when James Tague, a bystander in DeLupaza, came forward with a bloody cheek after a shot that hit the curb and sprayed his face with concrete, the commission asked the FBI to investigate the claim. The FBI then determined that Tague's story was legit, since Dallas police officer L.L. Hill corroborated it when he radioed in around 12.40 p.m., about 10 minutes after the assassination, saying, quote, I have one guy here that was possibly hit by a ricochet from the bullet off the concrete, end quote. You know, every Texan of a certain age can remember the pain they felt when they learned that President Kennedy had been assassinated. Ken talked about that a short time ago. But, you know, only one man remembers a certain kind of pain. We are talking about the spectator injured by a bullet fired from the sixth floor of the school book depository. That bullet, of course, meant for President Kennedy. NBC5's Jeff Smith caught up with him recently here in Dealey Plaza. When James Taig walks through Dealey Plaza, the memories come flooding back. Got over there just in time to uh, hear this man uh, sobbing to the policeman. His head exploded, his head exploded. The policeman said, whose head? And he says, the president's. Taig had no intention of watching the motorcade that day. He was running late to meet his girlfriend, a woman he'd later married and was stuck in traffic. I was concerned that, that I was late, and I was in this lane of traffic. Tague was standing here when the motorcade turned onto Elm Street in front of the Texas School Book Depository. That's when a sharp noise pierced through the cheering crowds. And then somebody threw a firecracker. I was wondering what kind of an idiot would be throwing a firecracker with the president driving by. Of course, it wasn't a firecracker. It was an assassin's bullet. And I'm standing there in disbelief of somebody throwing a firecracker. Crack, crack, two rifle shots. About a second apart, and something stings me in the face. What stung him in the face was a fragment from a bullet intended to kill Kennedy. Bullet that missed. It had struck the nearby curb. Could have been a mixture of a little bit of lead and concrete. I was sprayed, sprayed. Debris hit me in the face. Broke the skin maybe in three or four places. A drop of blood in each place. Nothing serious. But it's arguably the most important minor injury in American history. Here's why. Two weeks after the assassination, the FBI concluded Oswald fired three bullets. Two hit President Kennedy, one hit Governor Connolly. 
The Warren Commission was prepared to reach the same conclusion, but when Dallas newspaper reports about that concrete scar hit Washington, commissioners realized that one of the three shots missed the motorcade. I didn't know I was changing history. I just knew it's probably important that there was a missed shot. The 27-year-old filed this affidavit about what happened. And all of a sudden, the Warren Commission had a big problem. So you made them change? They had to rewrite the report. That spawned the infamous magic bullet theory, the contested conclusion that one bullet caused significant injuries to both men. It changed history. If, I, if that policeman had not ran up to me that day and I'd have gone home and forgot it, history would have been different. Tague understands his role in history, but even now, 50 years later, he struggles with what happened. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp. Today, I, I try, I'm still trying to grasp. President Kennedy was killed right here in front of me. Nellie Conley, the last surviving passenger of the car in which President Kennedy was assassinated, is reasserting her belief that the Warren Commission was wrong about one bullet striking both JFK and her husband, former Governor John Conley. She says in a Newsweek article, quote, I will fight anybody that argues with me about those three shots. I do know what happened in that car. Fight me if you want to, end quote. The Warren Commission concluded in 1964 that one bullet passed through Kennedy's body and wounded Conley, and that a second bullet struck Kennedy's head, killing him. It concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman. The Connollys maintained that two bullets struck the president in Dealey Plaza almost 60 years ago, and a third shot hit Governor Connolly. Connolly died in 1993 at the age of 75. The Warren Commission concluded there also was a bullet that missed the car entirely and struck bystander James Tagg. Some conspiracy theorists argue that if three bullets struck the men, as Conley insisted, and a fourth missed, then there must have been a second gunman because no person could have fired four rounds from Oswald's bolt-action rifle so quickly. Mrs. Conley says in the Newsweek article that personal notes she wrote a few weeks after the assassination reaffirmed her belief of the number of shots. Mrs. Conley wrote that after hearing the first shot, John Conley turned to his right to look back at President Kennedy and then wheeled to the left to get another look at the president. He could not, so he realized the president had been shot. Then she wrote, John Conley was himself hit by a second shot and said, my God, they are going to kill us all. According to her notes, that was followed by another shot that passed through Kennedy's head. She wrote, quote, with John in my arms and still trying to stay down, I felt something falling all over me. My eyes saw bloody matter in tiny bits all over the car. Mrs. Kennedy was saying, Jack, Jack. They have killed my husband. I have his brains in my hand. End quote. Here's Nellie Connolly in 2003 on the 40th anniversary of the assassination in an interview with reporter Ernie Manuse. She was a wife, a mother, the first lady of the state of Texas, and the last person to speak to President Kennedy before he was assassinated. Hello, I'm Ernie Manuse. Coming up on interviews, Nellie Connolly takes us back to that fateful day in Dallas. When you think back on the Kennedy assassination, what comes to your mind? A horrible incident in the history of our state and our country. An unbelievable happening. Having been part of it, though, how do you think you view it differently than the rest of the country does? 
Well, because I was in there, I was a part. First, let me tell you that I cannot believe it has been 40 years. Second, I can't believe that I am the last surviving person that was in the back of the four of us. It was in the back of that uh, limousine. And third, I cannot believe that the notes I wrote have suddenly become so important. Takes back, explain what the notes are. The notes, uh, when I brought uh, Governor Conley home from the hospital in Dallas to the mansion, settled him in, I got yellow pads, pens, and pencils, and I went off into a quiet part of the mansion, and I sat there and wrote what happened in that car. Not for you, not for the world, not for history, not because I thought I was a writer. I wrote these notes for Little Conley's, my grandchildren and Little Conley's yet unborn, in case they had some interest in what happened on that awful day to their grandmother and grandfather who were in that car. When you looked back at the notes now, was there anything surprising in there that you had forgotten? No. No? Well, I put them in a file drawer after I wrote them and closed the file drawer and never saw them again for 33 years. And your story hadn't changed at all in all that time? Not at all. Take me back then. Tell me the story as you saw it. Of Of our trip in Dallas? Yeah. Well, we arrived at Love Field. We had come from Fort Worth where it was kind of rainy and gray and ugly and, you know, didn't make you very happy for a parade, a cavalcade. We got to Dallas and the sun came out and it was just beautiful. And there were people at the airport. Uh, We got in the car and then we took off on our tour in Dallas. The people from Dallas couldn't have been more wonderful to the Kennedys. They were just screaming for them, yelling at them, just like they were so glad. And I was like a mother whose children were doing just what I wanted them to do. And the grandparents were so happy because the Kennedys were responding happily just like the people in Dallas. And it was just couldn't have been better. And I restrained myself as long as I could. Then I turned to the president and I said, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. And he grinned, that wonderful grin. And it was just a few seconds, a minute or two, and I heard this loud noise. Now let me tell you that the president and Miss Kennedy are seated in the back. John is in front of the president. And I'm in front of Miss Kennedy. We are in jump seats that have a a space between them. They're on a plank seat that they can raise and lower at will. So when I heard this noise, it came over my right shoulder and I turned around. And I didn't know at first what it was because the motorcycles, you know, backfire and make all that noise. But I I knew it was not a good noise. And I turned back just in time to see the president's hands fly up to his neck, and then he just sunk down a few inches in the car. John, who is seated in front of him, no, and is a Your husband, the hunter, governor. Yeah, John Connolly. And he knew that was a gunshot. And he turned to his right, but he couldn't see the president who was directly behind him. So then he flipped to his left, and he still couldn't see him. And he said, no, 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 and turned back. And when he got about halfway back, 
the second shot hit John Connolly, and he said, my God, they're going to kill us all, and then just collapsed forward, blood everywhere. Now, I know this takes longer than six seconds, but it happened, all happened in six seconds. My husband was hurt very badly, and I wanted to do something to help him, but I, I didn't know what to do. So I just pulled him over as best I could. He was too big a man for that little area and pulled him over across my lap. So he's lying there face up. One of his hands that had always had his Stetson in it was up on his chest. And then I put mine over and uh, pushed him down. And the doctor said after we got to the hospital that if we hadn't done that, that that wound was called a sucking wound and that it sucks air in. And on the battlefield, they close it. They stuff it with anything, a sock, a scarf, a shirt. And by putting our hands over his chest, we closed the wound. And they said John probably would have died before we got to the hospital. That was the second shot. Really tore him up. Then... While I had him down, there was the third shot. And see, I couldn't move, so I couldn't turn around. I couldn't do anything. But tiny, bloody matter was all over whatever part of the interior of the car there was and all over our clothes. So I knew that that had been a pretty powerful shot. That's the one that took the president's head. Now, we got to the hospital. The, the uh, Secret Service man said, pull out of the cavalcade. Go to the nearest hospital. So they just yanked that car out, and I could hardly hold John. It was so, They got out so fast. And then they turned and went tearing down the... Could you hear Jackie in the back? Jackie said, they've killed my husband. I have his brains in my hand. That's when I knew it was head. Governor Conley was in serious jeopardy of dying due to blood loss when they wheeled him in on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital. Investigators, authors, and researchers have bitterly debated for years whether the governor's injuries are evidence of a conspiracy, but little has been written about Conley's close brush with death. Kennedy and Conley both entered the Parkland Emergency Department at the same time, but the focus was on the president. Conley was unattended for several minutes, gasping for breath with a collapsed lung, until a resident inadvertently walked into the room and saw what was going on. Two doctors, Dr. Pappas and Dr. Duke, said Conley's open chest wound was baseball-sized, adding that, quote, the bullet had traveled along a path through the governor's chest wall and shattered the fifth rib, collapsing the right lung. He was in severe distress and catonic. To make matters worse and more complicated, a Secret Service agent with a machine gun came in the room and told the doctors to scram for a security check. The doctors refused to leave Connolly's side. The governor improved after Dr. Duke inserted chest tubes. The treatment team also hooked up IVs, injected antibiotics, and sent him to the operating room for an open thoracotomy. Surgeons repaired the injuries and replaced the governor's blood. He lost about 1,500 milliliters. Surgeons also repaired the governor's injured right wrist and left thigh. The governor recovered and was discharged after 16 days, although he was readmitted briefly for a wrist wound infection. 
Conley was fortunate because he was treated quickly, Dr. Pappas believes, and he otherwise would have bled to death within a few minutes. John Conley would go on to serve as Secretary of the Treasury under President Richard Nixon. He became a Republican and unsuccessfully ran for president in 1980. He died in 1993 at the age of 76 of complications of pulmonary fibrosis. Conley wrote that his doctors attributed the condition of being shot through the lung. Not only would John Conley always be remembered as being in the car when President Kennedy was assassinated, but he will also be remembered because of this bedside interview he done on November 27, 1963, while still laying in his bed in Parkland Hospital. I am in Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas at the bedside of Governor John Conley, where he is recovering from his wounds. Governor Connolly, what are your recollections of those terrible moments when you and President Kennedy were shot? Martin, just before it occurred, of course, uh, we'd had a great morning in Fort Worth, a magnificent breakfast. Uh, we spoke in a slight visual. We made a trip to Dallas, uh, huge throngs along the way. We got into downtown Dallas, there were a tremendous crowd, real warmth, uh, real understanding, real appreciation. And Nellie and I saw it so vividly because we were riding in the car with them. Uh, we did not attempt to acknowledge the obvious ovation that they were getting because we, we knew it was for the Kennedys. Uh, the reception had been magnificent. Uh, the president had remarked on it. I saw it Miss Kennedy. As a matter of fact, I guess not 30 seconds uh, before the tragic incident occurred, that Nellie had turned to the president and said, Mr. President, uh, they can't make you believe now that uh, there are not some in Dallas who love you and appreciate you, can they? And he said, no, they sure can't. Then, and then we had just turned the corner. We heard a shot. I turned to my left. I was sitting in the jump seat. I turned to my left to look in the back seat. The president had slumped. Uh, he had said nothing. Almost simultaneously, as I turned, I was hit. And I knew I'd been hit badly. And uh, I said, I knew the president had been hit, and I said, my God, they're going to kill us all. And then there was a third shot, and the president was hit again. And we, we thought then very seriously. I had still regained consciousness, but the president had, been, had slumped in Ms. Kennedy's lap. And when he was hit the second time, she said, or, or the first time, I, it, it all happened in such a brief span. She said, uh, oh, my God, they killed my husband. She said, Jack, Jack. And, uh, and then after the third shot, uh, the next thing that occurred, I was conscious. The Secret Service man, of course, the chauffeur had, they had pulled out of the line. They said, uh, get out of here on the radio. They said, get us to a hospital immediately. And so we pulled out, of course, and immediately as fast as we could go and got to the hospital. And, and, uh, in the space of a, a few seconds, it's unbelievable what can happen. Martin, we went from great joy, anticipation, uh, wonderful crowds, wonderful throngs, to great tragedy. Governor, what are the thoughts that have come to you as you've lain here in this hospital bed recovering from your wounds? Oh, Martin, there have been there have been many and and many subjects, and I just wonder. You wonder all types of things. You wonder why his life was taken, why my life was spared, 
Uh, and I know, of course, that some now speculate that, well, it was me the man was after, not him. Of course, I have been campaigning all over Texas uh, all last year for 11 months, all this year riding parades, horseback, in cars, open cars, on street corners. I could have been in, uh, an easy prey for anyone with no security or whatever. So uh, I don't place any, uh, any state of this, except I think the man did what he intended to do, to shoot both of us. And uh, that's the only thing I can think. What other reflections have you had, Governor? Only that maybe, uh, uh, Martin, that the President of the United States, as a result of this great tragedy, been asked to do something in death he couldn't do in life, and that is to so shock and so stun a nation and the people and the world of what's happening to us, of the cancerous growth that's being permitted to expand and enlarge itself upon the community and the society in which we live, that breeds a hatred, a bigotry an intolerance, an indifference, a, a lawlessness uh, that is, I think, an, really an outward manifestation of what occurred here in Dallas. It could have occurred in any, any other city in America. It is nothing more than a manifestation of an extremism on both sides that basically is the genesis of our self-destruction if we're ever going to be destroyed. I am not the least fearful of any foreign enemy, so long as we have within ourselves uh, not hate, but human understanding, not passion and prejudice, but reason and tolerance, and not ignorance, but knowledge, and the willingness to use that knowledge. This is the only answer I can give Martin Why? He's gone, and I'm not. Governor, when did they tell you that President Kennedy was dead? They told me uh, Saturday, uh, after I was conscious enough really to understand. Uh, it was no news, Nellie told me. And uh, it was no news to me, though, because uh, I was almost sure that, that uh, he would be after the two shots that I felt he'd taken. I hope, I hoped, as everyone else did, of course, I hope longer than most because uh, I did not know uh, until long after most people knew uh, that he had succumbed uh, because I personally felt that, that I had been killed too when I received my shot. Yes. What were your first conscious thoughts about the president's death? Martin, my really... Uh, first conscious thoughts are still my same conscious thoughts. Just, my God, uh, what a horrible, horrible tragedy. And uh, how, in the space of a fleeting moment, uh, things can change. Only before, uh, here were two relatively young men. We were almost identical age riding with what I would like to believe two of the most beautiful wives in this country. We've been together for 24 hours. They were happy. We were their host. 
We were proud to be their host in Texas. They had a tremendous welcome in San Antonio, in Houston, in Fort Worth, in Dallas. And then in a matter of a few seconds, uh, this incident occurred that changed all our lives, changed the course of history for many people in what many divergent ways you never know. And it uh, makes you reflect, ponder, wonder. Uh, if you do all that you ought to do uh, day by day in trying to make whatever contribution you can uh, to the society in which you live, because you never know when your day may come. Doug Thompson, who was founder and publisher of the Washington, D.C. newspaper Capitol Hill Blue, revealed that in 1982 he asked Governor John Conley if he was convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald fired the gun that killed John F. Kennedy. Governor Conley states, quote, absolutely not. I do not for one second believe the conclusions of the Warren Commission. Thompson then asked why he had not spoken out about this. Conley replied, quote, because I love this country and we needed closure at the time. That's why I did not speak out publicly about what I believe, end quote. John Kennedy's death and the doubts that surrounded it to this day marked the beginning of the end of America's innocence. The cynicism grew with the lies of Vietnam and the senseless deaths of too many thousands of young Americans in a war that never should have been fought. Doubts about the integrity of those we elected as our leaders festered as this country found itself embroiled in another senseless war based on too many lies. John Conley felt he served his country best by concealing his doubts about the Warren Commission's whitewash, but his silence may have contributed to the growing perception that our elected leaders can rewrite history to fit their personal agendas. Had Conley spoken out as a high-ranking political figure with doubts about the, quote, official version of what happened, it might have sent a signal that Americans deserve the truth from their government, even when that truth hurts. Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination, a bombshell has just been dropped in this case. After 60 years, Secret Service agent Paul Landis speaks out about how he found the magic bullet. And as it turns out, this bullet is not so magic after all. His interview is going to blow this case wide open and hear how it destroys the Warren Commission's assertion of the single bullet theory and how Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman on November 22, 1963. We'll see you next week.